So welcome to the first ever episode of the Six Cells podcast. Um, the remit for this podcast is Loose by Design, uh, where basically we want to talk to people who work in sales and marketing um, and are in some way involved in the art and science of selling stuff. So today I am delighted to welcome Matt Stockbridge to the show, who has extensive experience working on brand marketing uh, with the last 15 years of Matt's career spent at Cadbury's. Matt, welcome to the first ever episode of the Six Cells podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's uh, it's great to be here, and um, just thank you there for adding an extra five years to my experience at uh, at Cadbury. So that was um, it was actually ten years, but it felt like fifteen. Oops. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> so on that note, could you start us off then, perhaps, by giving us a yes. quick overview of your career to date, please, Matt? Yeah, sure. So uh, I began my career working at Insight Market Research, and if you spend more than four or five years in any organisation. Um, it goes through a lot of transformation. So I spent 15 years at what was Taylor Nelson, Taylor Nelson Softwares, AGB, and Kantar latterly. And there I was designing questionnaires, consumer diaries, working with purchase panels, working on usage and attitude studies, portfolio management, that sort of thing, and predominantly for FMCG clients. So over that, over the years I was there, I worked with Procter & Gamble, Unilever, McVitie's, Nestle, uh, J&J, GSK was another one. So real sort of background in insight, knowledge and data. And then I moved uh, just at the sort of beginning of the noughties to uh, Cadbury. The day I joined Cadbury, got taken over by Kraft, then latterly became Mondelez. And what I was asked to do there was to set up uh, an analytics practice for the chocolate business across Europe. Um, there wasn't really that uh, kind of measurement culture there when I joined. So this was about working with internal sales, media, promotion, uh, different teams and data, build a kind of roadmap, sign it off by senior stakeholders, and then start delivering measurement. And then over time, building partnerships with external uh, organizations and platforms just to try and understand what was working, what's not working, what needs improving. And then over that time, uh, because of my background on, on both the media sorry, the agency and client side. Um, I worked with a number of industry bodies such as ISBA on their executive committee and their board, the IPA advisory board and UCOM on their commercial board. Um, and then I finished with Cadbury toward the end of last year. We kind of reached the end of that sort of journey, I suppose, on setting up that practice and it's often running and, and producing great work. And so uh, end of last year, I set up my own business, uh, Trinity Projects, um, to basically work with any and all organizations who are interested in making more what I like to call evidence-based decisions. Evidence-based. Um, excellent. Yes. So, so that's, yes. that leads me beautifully into my next uh, question for you, actually. So at Six Cells, we work with a lot of the social media platforms on behalf of our clients. Um, I believe, um, while talking with you off air, that um, as a part of your work at Cadbury, um, I'm going to call it Cadbury, if you don't mind. I know it's Mondelez now, but um, I'm quite old school, uh, and that's the brands that, uh, that, that, that I, I feel most affinity with. In fact, I have some Cadbury's in the fridge. I was going to rustle um, through the microphone while you were talking just to sort of bring some sort of uh, brands Perfect. to it, but I thought that that's probably quite annoying to listen to. So um, as you, you said off air that, um, that you sort of were in, heavily involved in building the partnerships that Cadbury had with the likes of Google and Facebook and Twitter uh, and Snap and, and others. Um, and you mentioned just then um, evidence-based decisions, which um, I love. And uh, lots of different people have different ideas on what success looks like on social media. So how did you go about setting something up that um, gave you evidence, well, firstly, that allowed you to make evidence-based decisions on social media channels and then um, analyze that and decide what success was? Sure. So when you begin, what I'd recommend is beginning your journey with one partner at least. Now, so when we started this, probably about 2004, 2005, um, we didn't have these partnerships in place. We were very traditional media channels that we were using. And then as, as Facebook started to grow and, and YouTube slightly started to sort of be seen as a serious channel for advertising, um, you know, the way it was looked at was, OK, we'll just put some extra kind of, you know, money there or we'll share existing content, um, in, you know, in its, in its PVC form or whichever and, and just sort of push it out on those channels. And then with Facebook, you know, oh, let's set up a Facebook page for each of our brands. But 
um weren't really sure why we were doing it i guess it was just like this is what everyone else is doing and people like our brand then um the, the turning point was facebook approached us and said look we believe you've got some great brands that could really uh, work well with you know our audience and but we just think that you need to maybe spend a bit more time understanding our channel and working with it and they um, invited us to what was called a publishing garage and what this was all this was about really was understanding over a couple of days you know what does consistent and good work look like on our platform and at that time they showed us examples of work i think it was uh, starbucks was one i think lego were pretty strong as well and all that all they did was i think after the turning point for us was they put up this big screen with these thumbnails of all the posts that they'd had for you know one a week for uh, I don't know, a number of weeks for each of these companies. And you could just see, looking back, that there was a consistency in kind of colour and tone and imagery, not not looking in too much detail, but you could see there's something kind of consistent here. It feels like it's coming from the same place. And then they put up what we were doing on what was our probably most social brand at that time and, and probably still is, which was Free Meg. And straight away, you sort of thought, well, yeah, there's not, you know, it, it sort of jarred a bit. There were some things that looked quite different. So people kind of bought into the idea that, well, maybe we should try some of these principles. And so um, we agreed to spend some a sort of overspend, I suppose, with them on a particular brand. So that's kind of the first learning was about testing and learning and trying something new. And, and it's amazing because I think it was a real battle um, to get that signed off, to get the, the uh, uh, to get the business to agree to it. Um, and I know at the time uh, there was Sonia Carter and then Jerry Dakin, who uh, have moved on to big and great things since then. But back then, you know, they were sort of we were sort of working together to try and find case studies and, and persuade the business to, to take a gamble on Facebook. I can't really imagine that now. Anyway, what came out of that was, um, you know, I think what helped was the fact that it was cream egg, which kind of lended itself to people responding. And we started to see some good results. Now, part of that extra investment meant that we got additional um, support and metrics, I suppose, from Facebook. So that obviously helps. We had a good brand that would work socially and you had their support with it. And then everyone, I guess, wanted to, to work and sitting in a room with, you know, the media agency, creative agencies, uh, marketing, uh, you know, all the key stakeholders in the same room. You know, that was we hadn't really done that before. So that a partnership part of it across agencies which can be a bit difficult to do sometimes even today but that's something that we managed to do once we got past the personalities you can start to share look here's a case and this works in this country and other conversations that were going on and that led to a uh, the, the announcement of a global partnership facebook basically saying look we want to work with companies like you we want to prove the benefit of using our platform so we will give you some extra support investment discounts whatever um you know and we'll work with you so long as you know we can share some of the results and so on and so once you have that blueprint in place you know within a year we'd signed similar partnerships with twitter uh, with google as well and then obviously a few years later with snapchat so i think facebook is the one i feel you know, i had a bit more involvement i guess in the start with but then the ongoing part was then going in and visiting the agencies when i had my set of results to talk to them about well what do we think you know why do we think these campaigns did well or didn't do well and um, that's where the I suppose it's building the partnership and having it in the first place and there's kind of maintaining it so I guess that was part of my role was kind of maintaining that thing so they could understand the results that we were sharing internally and then they could also help us to understand you know what was working what wasn't what needed Okay, interesting. So you mentioned there testing and learning in the early days um, mm -hmm. with Cream Egg and other, and other brands. Um, and you also um, mentioned um, whether a campaign did well or not. What, what I'm really interested in, Matt, is um, how did you know whether a campaign did well or not? Because at the end of the day, you want to flog more Cream Eggs, right? But, but sure. it's quite difficult to go from somebody saw um, a drumming gorilla on Facebook and then went into Sainsbury's and bought a Cream Egg. So, so what what metrics were you using um, to yeah. decide whether a campaign did well or not? So I think initially what we had to do was to try and prove that the, the kind of the first point that there is a relationship between advertising and sales. Not all advertising has to do that. Not all advertising does do that. 
Um, but remember, what you're trying to do is to win over an organization that there's even a commercial value in advertising and marketing to which there's a wide degree of skepticism. And so you need to initially really work with um, use brands that you think have got the best chance of delivering a sales uplift or campaigns that are going to deliver a sales uplift. So whether it's a, you know, you're advertising a promotion or you're advertising something. And we were using a very, very common method, which a number of organizations use, which is market mix modeling. Um, and with that, what that approach, basically what you're trying to do is take a number of data inputs and work out and attribute all the drivers of a business to any peak in sales or a decline in sales by week. So if you're for FMCG, if you're running a promotion, if you change the price, change in distribution or change in media. Promotions are happening all the time. And so you kind of strip that effect out. You strip other effects out and you can look at them over probably a two or a three year period. And then you're left with these peaks. So what you're trying to see, first of all, with, with market mix modeling and, and the most common thing is, is short term uplifts in sales. Now, campaigns that drive are more about the longer term or about driving awareness or um, love or you know, persuasion or whatever. These things um, aren't necessarily going to come through um, as well in market mix modeling. There are other types of approaches to use that. But I think what we need to do first, what companies need to do is, if they're going on this journey, is to first of all prove to people that there can be uh, an association between a short-term uplift and a sales short-term campaign. So to do that, um, the other thing you then therefore need to know, use is a consistent metric. And this is what is the thing that's this is, and this is the great thing about all these metrics. So I guess is behind your question. There's there's the specific metrics that are a driver of sales. So whether this is outside of media, this is you know um, a price increase or a price decrease, um, or specifically if the ad has been served. And there's there's lots of stuff about you know if I can see your ad, then there's a chance I might respond to it. If I don't see it at all or it's too small or whichever, then I'm not. And at that time, and, and it's the same now, to be honest, it's not perfect, but the most consistent measurement that we had was just simply to use um, paid impressions. Now, there's lots of issues around using paid impressions. I know it changes by device and not all impressions are equal. Right? All of that is correct. However, they are at least usually relatively consistent. And within modeling, what you're trying to do is to see, okay, how consistent over time you know, what's the measure? What have I paid for? What have I got back? Now, also within the digital space, you generate a number of other metrics you mentioned, whether it's likes or shares and so on. And we would use those measures, but not to put into the model in order to measure an output, but more in the evaluation. So when we got an ROI and it was high or it was low, whatever it was, we could then say, okay, we're not going to understand this. And there's lots of other things that are going on. There's a temptation sometimes to think, if I keep putting more data inputs into my model, I'll be able to explain more things. But not all of these measures are drivers of a sale. They are just things that explain it, not things that drive it, if that makes sense. So, the, you know, it's, it's not you know, the most sort of popular kind of choice. But, you know, simple impressions were the, the easiest thing for us to get to in order to measure there's an input from, from social media. And then... The next thing you need to do is to commit to this process on a longer period of time because you need to have uh, anyone has got a background in insight. You want to know what the sample size is. So if I've got 10 observations, 10 campaigns, uh, similar kind of level of spend and the ROIs look like this, you know, I can make some learnings. But if I've got 100 of those or if I've got 1000 of those and I've got those across countries and across brands uh, and across uh, categories, the more and more learnings you have, and you've hopefully you've collected it and measured it in a consistent way, it doesn't have to be perfect, it could be consistent, you can then start to say, okay, is this higher? Is it lower? What are my expected levels? What sorts of benchmarks are we started to try and establish? And that's where it gets very interesting. So at the beginning of the journey, yes, people get very excited about the ROI, what's my return? But a few years later, it's less about the absolute level of return. It's about how has it changed from one year to another to another? What did we do differently? How has it changed? How has it evolved? How do we ultimately make a better decision? And that's a much more great sort of positive and useful conversation that you can have uh, as opposed to, you know, that, that campaign on ROI of two. So that's great or that's not.
okay. that makes sense. Yeah, so you, you touched upon um, many different metrics um, and is trying to focus in on the things that kind of move the needle. I suppose it goes back to that saying that not everything that can be measured matters and not everything that matters can be measured. Um, you, mm. you mentioned earlier that, um, that not all advertising will um, make a difference in sales and nor should it. Um, so mm. I guess you were there talking about brand building, were you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's we we started to realize, and not 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 all companies can do this because they don't necessarily have the budgets. But what we started to realize was that if we started to increase our presence uh, across the whole year, rather than just you know strong bursts every now and again, and if we did it in a relatively consistent manner, so that it felt like the stories that we were sharing felt like they were coming from the same place. Um, you're still measuring short-term uplift in sales because that's just the way we've always done it. But several sort of little short-term uplifts, it's like what people talk about, the ad stock effect. You know, you know, here's here's the thing airing. And as it's sort of, you've seen the ad three or four times or whatever platform, it's gone into your memory and you say, okay, that's made a memory. And then there's another story we're going to say about another brand or we're going to, with chocolate, we're going to talk about Easter and then moving from Easter into the summer, maybe some new products or sponsorship with a sporting event or something and then we lead into christmas it was suddenly actually we can tell a thread throughout the year and that's where i saw the real benefit and the real payback in brand building you couldn't necessarily sit within an individual campaign and that, that's some and that's hard to do you know a campaign over a few weeks has that built my brand and my brand equity well that's, you know people don't shift their love for a brand based off the back of advertising that fast. I mean, they might, if there's a dis PR disaster or something, they, that might shift it. I've seen some big shifts in sentiment in the short term negatively. Um, much more difficult to do positively, um, dramatically in a short period of time, but you know, not impossible. But what is better... I suppose it's a bit like trust, time, isn't it? It can take a lifetime to build and a second to lose. Well, of- yeah, I so I I was always I always used to agree with that. I used to probably say it in presentations, but I, on the other hand, if you look if you looked at the uh, KFC um, chicken sourcing debacle of last year, you know you could sort of say those headlines of people moaning about their lack of chicken because they decided to switch to I think it was DHL or something to get their chickens delivered to the shops. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, they come with a very smart, clever campaign, probably a creative idea that was sort of ready to go. It's the sort of thing like this is the sort of thing we can do to respond if something bad happens. And um, I think they probably got, they probably measured it more positive PR that came out of a, a, a kind of a big PR disaster. You know, they faced into it. They shared about it. And I, I mean, I don't know the results, but I do know that they did a TVC like, three six months later and it referenced the fact that you know that kind of error in it so you're right i suppose trust can be lost very quickly it's easy to lose but it probably also is easy to get back if you respond very well in the moment and obviously the way media is now that's one of the great things about it you can respond in the moment. you can reach a lot of people very quickly if you need to yeah interesting um talking of what could potentially be seen as negative advertising that um, I know you're a big fan of um, the Burger King advertising um, <laughs> with a big, with a bit and uh, not a Big Mac. God, that's, uh, that's bad. Isn't oh, it? Big Mac, a whopper, should I say yes. um, that looked like it had completely gone moldy essentially, um, which you wouldn't necessarily have um, thought about as a, potentially a great brand, but um, it got a lot of, a lot of traction. What, why were you a fan of that campaign, Matt? Well, yeah, um, well, when I first saw it, um, my first reaction is, well, I'm, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this. Um, I, and so I, I kind of wanted to reserve judgment. And obviously, if you're in this sort of industry and you're on LinkedIn, there's no shortage of opinions flying up. And if you get stuck in that world a lot, you can start to think that this is what everyone in the world is talking about. And as we all know, you know, attention is pretty low and uh, and love uh, and attention to advertising is also very low in the grand scheme of things. And advertising as a driver of sales is actually very small. Um, it's a big can be a big driver of growth, but actually in absolute terms, you know, it's, it's about distribution. It's about availability and price more so than, you know, an advertiser. But, I mean, I'm talking particularly about FMCG here, but, you know, other markets to an extent will be similar. 
But with that campaign, I just saw, oh, my, my concern with it was initially was I, there's a tendency in organizations, and Cadbury was guilty of this in the past, where you have a certain amount of success and you build on that and you build on that. And so almost regardless of what you do, um, you know, you take more risks and you win lots of awards and talk about it. And I just thought, hmm, this feels a little bit like you've gone a bit too far. Um, so I, it certainly did get people talking. And it was certainly, um, a, let's say, a brave decision. And that's what everyone talks about in, in, within, within advertising. We want, to, we want to be brave. We want to be fearless. We want to be disruptive. So you do something on a pretty mainstream brand that, that probably ticks all of those boxes. And um, and then it sort of has a very mixed kind of response. I think my uh, my sort of overall view with Burger King and and with McDonald's, and I think this this is actually sort of proven by you know business results. I suppose is what I look at ultimately. And I know people like Mark Ritson who, who writes regularly about marketing and advertising um, in a quite a contrarian way. I suppose has talked about this at length as well, which is that you know it, it appears that. Burger King do quite a lot of great and fame-building campaigns. Uh, McDonald's maybe less so. However, it does appear on business results that McDonald's are the ones who are winning versus Burger King, which is is creating these great stories and these great stunts. So I think I think it's an interesting thing. I would say I'm not sure how much of a fan I am of the campaign of that particular campaign. Um, what I, I think I'll be more interested in is Burger King demonstrating and showing more of the business effect of what they're doing, as opposed to, you know, the latest I've seen about talking about saying, oh, look, Burger King has now won a load more awards. And if you're famous in our industry for just winning awards, you know, that's great. And you get lots of great people and everyone loves award. I love an award. Um, but if you're more famous for that than actually, you know, uh, business results then I'm not sure how it's sustainable that is in, in the longer term. Yeah, right. So talking about branding, um, and, and um, for those listening to this in the future, um, we're <laughs> currently in lockdown in the UK due to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, mm. and a number of brands have taken the decision to pull back advertising. Um, some of them are very obvious because if you're in travel and there's no travel, then, of course, um it might not be a good time. You're, you're hemorrhaging cash, et cetera. But um, you mentioned something earlier, Matt, about um, trying to be more consistent and always on with Cadbury mm. rather than perhaps just short bursts. And I think that's potentially how branding works. Mm. I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to ask you that if that's the case and if it takes a long time and consistency to build a brand, then there's a fairly strong argument, isn't there, that brands in this current climate should continue advertising from a branding point of view, even if it's not from a direct response or, or you know, like a, a sales point of view. What, what are your thoughts around that? Um, oh, there's lots I could talk about this. So I, will, <laughs> I try and keep it as concise as I can. So the first thing I would say is that absolutely you're right. Now, you might have very strong business reasons to not advertise because people aren't buying your product at the moment or they can't or travel's banned or whichever. So that point, let's let's just park that and say that actually for probably the majority of businesses, um, they do have the choice to still keep some awareness going and, and probably still get their products and, and their awareness to consumers. Um, it's a bit of a shame that it's taken this pandemic to drive the digital transformation in probably a lot of businesses, but at least it's now happening probably at an accelerated rate. So, you know, that, that's so that's happening. Now, the second point is that if, you, if you're pulling your advertising because you want to save money, then this comes back to the measurement thing. There's presumably a, a view in those businesses that, that, that the, the value that advertising brings is not strong enough to keep it going. And this is where, you know, this constant, or not constant, but a, you know, a continual battle with with more of the i suppose the the creative side of the business who have in the past resisted measurement and evaluation and numbers they see it as being evil this is the same side of the industry that's complaining now that advertising spenders dropped by a half uh, and i saw a headline the other day it's not going to recover for two or three years i said if the people who are your advertisers believed in the value of advertising and you worked with 
science and data and, and econometricians to prove its value, then surely they would not be spending less on it. They would be saying, right, here's the list of things we get rid of in a crisis. Advertising, bang, always goes number one, because let's face it, what value does that bring? So first of all, part of the reason it's dropping is because we're still not embracing enough conversations about the actual business value of advertising. I think the second point about doing it is that, okay, fine, you, you can step back. Um, but then what you're creating, particularly for one of the bigger brands in the market, is the opportunity for, for others to be more present when you're not. And at the time, I guess at the moment, people are more vulnerable. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of concern about life in general. You know, presenting a, a positive view and being one of the what being one of the good stories around that uh, and being present maybe is something that people remember, depending on how long this goes on for. So I think for, that's why the, I think the decisions for Coca-Cola in the UK to come out quite early and say we're, we're stripping back advertising, I thought was unusual. Um, I mean, if I was Pepsi um, or others, this moment I heard that. I would be doubling down. I don't know what the share of voices for Coke versus other brands. It may be lower than we think because sometimes the biggest brands don't kind of overinvest. But here is a, I would say, it's a great opportunity. And look at, you know, there can be some subtle and simple things you can do about an iconic brand, like what Budweiser have done, bringing back the WhatsApp ad. Very simple, quite fun, quite light, um, and, and within their brand personality. So I think. Yeah, there's there's also a, a, a danger that others can step in if you're not if you're not going to be present. And back to your point about continually keeping it in people's minds and their eyes and so on. I thought I would be seeing more older work coming in, um, a classic ads and so on. And I thought that would be you know a very appropriate response. I'm probably concerned a bit at the moment on some of the comms which is coming out, which is very aligned with what's going on at the moment. Um, so I think I had an ad break the other day. I saw two slots for Vodafone and, and uh, I think it was Cathedral Cheddar. And it was all, you know, stay at home, eat some cheese, you know, use your phone and so on. And here's lots of thumbnails of people. That, and oh, I, I'm not sh I mean, it'd be great to see the uh, System One as a company that do this, uh, to see the kind of emotional response to those ads when they do like eye tracking on and ask people to respond what they thought about that ad, because if if more and more of these are going to start to come out, then it starts to look all the same. But if you, you see what I mean, you, you start to see lots of ads of thumbnails of people at home and sharing socially and when this is over and stuff. And after a bit, you're thinking, well, I've just if I saw a whole ad break of those types of things, the main story is is not about the brand. It's about what's happening at the moment. So you're just sort of reinforcing that. Whether I'll even whether those things would make a difference, I don't know. I just, just I think when yeah. you can try try and be consistent with what you were doing. I've written, written about this on in, in on LinkedIn and I wrote an article about um, keeping calm and keep advertising for marketing week you know, a few months ago now. And I wasn't even sure doing a crisis; it was just about the importance of it. But I think there there's a real danger if you decide to pivot away from what you're already going to be doing because of the circumstances of having. Now, if, you know, personally, I would, I know what plans are like, you know, you'd be planning things sometimes a year in advance and you'd be this time of the year, you'd be thinking about what's happening next year. Now, I know things have changed in bits and pieces, but I feel there's probably been a, a sharper change in direction and probably too sharp a change uh, by a number of organisations. And I, it'll be interesting to see once we come through this, you know, I'm sure there will be more evidence as there have been before in previous, uh, mostly in recessions, but the brands that stayed strong and stayed consistent and continue to invest at a time when maybe some of the competitors weren't, were the ones that came out stronger. Yeah, interesting. I saw, a, I saw an advert. I think it's very, very difficult for a brand to act 100% genuine, even if their motives are good. Um, I saw an ad for EE with Kevin Bacon saying basically he'd normally um, be making a joke, but not now. Um, and like we're rooting for you, the NHS. And you think, and, and they gave them they gave them free data, and, and so so it was something that they could do to help, I guess. Um, mm. It's really, are you jumping on the we love the NHS bandwagon, mm. or it, it, you yeah. know, it's not you know if it, if you come across as insincere or 
or perhaps trying to engineer the situation to your own advantage, I think potentially could do more harm than good. I don't know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you're right. I think I think that it's say, say in that, for example, it's a perfectly good. It's, it's, there's, the, there's the sort of creative idea at the beginning of it is that we're going to give free data to the NHS. Brilliant message. Absolutely fine. It reminds me of when Gillette started talking about uh, changing from the best of man I could get to saying, let's promote positive images of men rather than bullying and everything else. Perfectly good sentiment and a great story. Love it. But the key thing is how you execute that and trying to do it. And, and the thing I would love to I love this is my sort of favorite tracking measure. I'm able to do this. But when my overall over, overwhelming kind of reaction is is of this sounds a bit sanctimonious, then I think, OK, you're, you're, you're losing. You know, if you are a fun brand and you talk about fun things, then don't stop being fun. Just because that's what people need. You know, they need them. They don't need there's, there's enough uh, reminders of, of the bad stuff. We are standing outside our houses in the UK, I'm sure other countries, every Thursday and spontaneously clapping for the NHS. No one in this country is unaware of how brilliant the NHS are. And giving them some free data is a great thing. So, yeah, but do it, but do it in a gen, do it in a brand, uh, you know, central way do it in a way that doesn't jar with what you've done before because you you're going to look back at this um you know you're going to look through your comms over the, over the next three or four years and you'll see these messages and kevin bacon's ee and so on then you'll see that thing and then you'll see the other stuff and everyone will go oh yeah well of course you know, that was that bit and you say yeah it's not really fit in does it with the story that we've been telling yeah interesting interesting so i want to change tack just a little bit now um and talk to you um about the wider um, advertising and marketing ecosystem. If you look at the Lumascape, on the very far mm-hmm. left, you have brands. On the very far right, you have uh, consumers, and then about a million companies in between that. Um, and um, depending on who you listen to, um, the likes of Facebook and Google take between 60 and 70p out of every pound spent on advertising, which means there's 30 or 40p left to go from um brands to consumers through that sort of uh, gauntlet of companies um in the middle i'm interested in your view as um a brand man um obviously spent 10 years at cabaret's not 15 <laughs> um and, right. and and your and a, and a big part of your work was working with the uh, the likes of facebook and google which are obviously they, they, there's many many fantastic reasons for that i was just interested mm. if you were aware of that disproportionate um percentage of spend that they were taking whether you, if you were aware, whether you thought that that was an issue in any way, and if you did think it was an issue in any way, what thoughts you had about how Cadbury's as a, as a business or Mondelez as a business would perhaps go about redressing the balance? Mm, sure. Um, so, so, yes, we, we did. Uh, there was a lot of work, um, particularly in the last few years, of some of this, uh, some of the lack of transparency. Um, around you know the you know what you're buying and what you're getting at the end of where it's going and I um, as one of the reasons I think I was invited to be part of the commercial board at UCOM is, is one of the big things about transparency and trust within the industry that, that needed to be addressed and is being addressed and so I would say um, it's getting better it's getting better and certainly people realise that you know we want to hold our uh, or we wanted to hold our partners accountable exactly for exactly where the spend was going and where it was going to. Now, so that that's, and that's you know, there was not really part of my remit, to be honest. You know, we had uh, media managers and media agents and so on that, that were on top of that more so than, than my view. So I have a view on it, but it's not something I was very close to. However, um, more of my kind of interest or approach was, was, was taking a, a lot of the discussion and debate gets very eccentric about you know walled gardens and, and what google and they're bad and facebook are bad and so on anywhere anywhere, anywhere that's big it's a bit like, you know people used to say tv was bad wherever the majority of the spend is going and in fmcg honestly still the majority is going on tv um traditional broadcast tv um as opposed to you know vod even it's increasing in vod but it's not you know it's not massive um so it's, we would always try and take a step back from a particular platform new and really understand, look, what is the story that we're trying to tell? You know, what, who are the audience that we're trying to reach? 
And what are the best platforms to use to do that? How do we adjust the content to make sure that it tells that story across whichever platforms that we need? Do we have to put every message on Facebook and YouTube? You know, actually, some campaigns, you know, might be none at all. Not every campaign is on TV. It depends what we're trying to achieve. And then you're investing the money to try and make sure that the majority of it or all of it is going exactly where you want it to. Um, and it doesn't mean that, you know, you will you, you write off old media and in inverted commas, uh, commas or just use new media because that's where the growth is and that's where lots of other people are active and that's what gives you the most eyeballs. This doesn't necessarily fit the story you're trying to, to, to tell. Uh, just a very simple example. We did, a, we did a campaign years ago, which was with Oreo, which was very fun. And it was designed to um, uh, to simulate the lunar eclipse. And it worked really well because on that day, the eclipse didn't happen because the clouds are really bad. So the few digital outdoor screens at that time, not many, but uh, central London, mainly big cities. So we simulated, you know, with an Oreo and you can imagine what it looked like thing going. Mm. And the biggest part of that was a big part of the spend and a, and a very technical kind of thing. But the biggest part of the spend was a cover wrap with the Sun newspaper. And it just, you know, it makes sense. It's called The Sun. We'll cover up The Sun. We use that brand to do it. Now, I, you know, I don't remember us ever doing a cover wrap of another newspaper in the 10 years that I was there or anything specific with an individual newspaper. You do it with a group of newspapers or a media group. But that was right for that campaign to deliver that message. And it did very well. Now, it's a 24 hour campaign. So not necessarily going to see a huge spike in sales. Everyone ran out that day and bought Oreos or the following day. And it happened to be a day where they were half price. Then and they bought them the following day as well. You think about it versus the media spend. You know, you get a little spike for 48 hours. But then after three months, six months, it's kind of forgotten or it's gone. So but it wasn't about short to muffling sales. It wasn't about any of those things. It was just the right channel. To, to, for the, the right audience to deliver the message that we wanted to do. So I think the conversation about that is, is very live and very wide outside of the brand, outside of manufacturers and advertisers. There's a hope and an expectation and there's people kind of working on it. But their conversations, trust me, are far more about, you know, what are our objectives? What are we trying to achieve? Who are we trying to reach? Help us, partners, help us creative agents media agencies, platforms to make better decisions, to get our content in the right place. What is working? Why do we think that's working well? How has it worked in the past? Um, so, I, I, of course, no one in marketing or advertising is going to answer that question and say, no, I'm not worried about it or it needs to be better. But trust me, it's not high on their agenda or list of things that they're thinking about on a day-to-day basis. Sure, makes sense. So you would rely perhaps on your agencies to um, to come to you with uh, the media plan outside of the partnerships that you built, which seems um, felt anyway throughout no, the conversation. They, they were st- trust me; those partnerships still really involve the media agencies as well. It's not a case that you work with when you work with Facebook in isolation from your media agency or creative agencies. Right. Um, they, they, you know, and there's a kind of a view. I mean, maybe it's just my experience, but by keeping the dialogue open and working with them and keeping them in the same room, um, you know, you have a much more constructive and positive kind of collaborative conversations. Um, I never got the feeling, uh, certainly the media side of it, maybe I was just very lucky. Um, that there's this idea from Facebook. I mean, maybe there was a bit in the early days where they would sort of say, give all your money to Facebook because that will be better than doing anything else. Or give all your money to Google or whichever. Now, of course, they want to increase their revenue, but even they are learning. You know, we cannot reach everyone and we cannot do everything through their channel. And that's probably the next step on. And we did some modeling to look at this, which was this what's called agent-based modeling to look at combinations of platforms to see if how you can really optimize your advertising or consumer journey across platforms to deliver the how does your if it works say your your tv or outdoor radio reinforced by twitter and youtube or the other way around or whichever so that even subconsciously people start to see oh actually you know i've this campaign has touched me in four or five different areas and therefore when i get to shelf oh i'm definitely very available to do that we're 
we've had some it didn't get we didn't always get consistent results with that um but that's definitely where you get something very powerful because you get an additional roi through the synergy effect of platforms working together in terms of when it's served the type of content and so on if you can do it it's not easy to do but if you can you'll go get additional roi because of the synergy effect Okay. So if I was, um, so a lot of my background was working for publishers um, outside of the geopoly of Facebook and Google. Technically, they'd be platforms, not publishers, but they're media owners, if you like. Uh, so I worked for the, the likes of The Telegraph and um, Evening Standard and Metro, etc. So if I was um, at a big news brand like that and I wanted to build a relationship mm-hmm. with Mondelez, is there bandwidth inside a brand for you to? entertain those conversations because it can get pretty busy pretty quick right because there's there's no shortage of uh, media owners out there that would like to have a direct relationship with a brand like like Cadbury so it feels like if you're one of the walled gardens with deterministic Mm. data and an enormous uh, brand and an enormous enormous audience then you potentially get those client conversations and partnerships and if you're not, you don't. So um, what was your experience of that um, in Cabri? And how do you think that that could potentially work better perhaps in the future? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I know I appreciate that, that it's a tough conversation to do. To get time with brand owners to talk about capabilities or what your platform can offer is a difficult thing to do because, you know, a brand owner will be, you know, in many cases will be working across you know, a number of campaigns. Um, and also a typical brand manager, you know, advertising is, is is also relatively, you know, a small part of their job, you know, a day a week or something. The other times they are working on packaging, they're working on new flavors, they're working on um, new new products. Um, if you're working seasonal and Christmas and Easter stuff in chocolate, you know, you essentially have a new range of products every year. You know, they're, they're tweaked slightly, they're changed and so on. You're working with sales and distribution. So, First thing you have to realize, it's very difficult to get their attention because, trust me, they are hoping and trusting their media partners internally and externally that are going to deliver what they need to do, come back to them with the media plan, as you say. So it's, just, it's, it's, it's not easy to do to get that time. Um, but I have, I, have seen it, I have seen it happen. In some organizations, there would, there, and I can't this is the case, there is a separate media team internal media team working across the business categories or or geographies who sit in between marketing and um, external agencies so obviously getting in front of those people um, if that specialism exists will help and then obviously the other thing is through the the media agency itself so at the moment um, even if you have partnerships with facebook and google and snap and so on you know you're still going to be spending 50 to 60 of your of your media spend uh, outside of the walled garden, should we say? So um, there's a still people there that need to be influenced. So if you have got someone friendly on the brand side, you know there's you know it's difficult to get their attention, but obviously that will help. In many cases, though, they will probably refer you back to a media team if it was someone at Cambridge just saying that was the experience there. And how to do it? I did a I did a at the IAB conference, uh, Engage conference, uh, a few years ago, and I talked a bit about, more really about digital partners and how they could do a better job of selling to companies like Mondelez. And the principles are the same, whether it's digital companies or platforms. What they need to be doing is to be very, very clear about, you know, case studies. This is what, this is what I would look for, case studies, examples where you've invested in a brand. Talk about partnerships. Talk about, do the due diligence to see what work have you done before. They can see it's not difficult to see. And and show them, look, if we were Metro and what we could do to be always on or to help with amplify your stories would look like this. And this is how we've done it. What what Facebook are doing and what YouTube are doing and and Snapchat and and Twitter is trying to invest in this partnership, this exactly that partnership, not Here's a, you know, here's a one-off campaign. Didn't we do well? Can I write an award? It's about how, does, how do we build, um, what does a two or a three or a four-year plan look like? What's that going to cost? And this is where it gets, you know, I'm not sure they would agree to do it, but I did speak to an agency about this once. is to say, okay, well, if we agree in the metrics you're going to deliver, 
then why don't you put some skin in the game as well? If we if we achieve an ROI of X, then you know we'll pay you that amount. But if what if it's if it doesn't achieve it, um, and then then we don't do. You know, it's, you know what what you know what risk reward are, is are, is your platform going to take if it can do that? And second, and the final thing is probably you know pick on a brand. I'll pick on a, a segment or something for a, an organization. You speak to a media company. They want to do the best for their for their clients anyway, where you can see that there's a good fit and there's a good chance of it being successful. Now, if I open a copy of a newspaper, for example, I'm just saying that because that's the example you gave, and my view of that is all I'm tending to see on a weekly basis are, as I, I probably do, if I think about FMCG, I'm tending to see adverts for Tesco, for Asda, you know, here's a, here's a page of discounts. Um, you know, then I'm going to think, okay, how do I, if, if that's if that's what it's there for, how does that help with the brand story and the brand image and, and the story that we're trying to, to tell? Now, maybe there is one. Maybe, you know, there's a great partnership thing with a retailer or one of the customers. That then becomes quite interesting. How does, how does a, a newspaper become at the center of that conversation? Um, so I think rather than worrying about who to speak to, Make sure you've got a compelling story to tell in the first place, which I guess ultimately that's what newspapers should be all about. I mean, all of the content in there should be compelling enough to make people want to read them, um, given the you know given it's the whole industry and how it's funded and how it's how it's supported has completely been overhauled and disrupted over the last you know five to ten years. Oh, I, th- I think the um, having the case studies is one thing. Having somebody look at them is is probably quite another thing. Um, brand mm-hmm. side, which leads me nicely actually into um, my next question, which is: How did you work with agencies? Um, what did that agency relationship look like from both a creative and a media point of view? How did your work influence um, creative and media? And what do you think the future? of um the brand and agency relationship will look like okay so really from um my own experience and and in terms of being you know working on econometrics modeling and looking at uplifted sales and roi the way the partnership worked was that we would um review all of our campaigns on an annual basis um across four or five countries and sort of rotating on some of the smaller ones and what we would do is we, once we had all of our results, um, I'd always set up, um, uh, maybe because I'm old school, but a face-to-face meeting, ideally, where I would sit down, for example, with the, the guys from Snapchat and say, right, we ran eight campaigns well, with Snapchat last year. Um, the ROIs on those were all of these things. Um, where we've got a significant amount of spend, we could do, we, in the last few years, we were able to split each of those campaigns by the ad type that was used if there was a, a significant number of impressions. So, um, you know, if it was YouTube, you know, would you, you know, did you use, uh, you know, the front screen? Was it a banner? Was it click through? Was it, you know, whatever, um, whatever the or carousel on Facebook or whichever. So I'm probably coming up with formats that they've probably moved on from since then. But if, if, you know, we would get down to that level of detail and then what they would do, we would look at it and say, look, um, what they can then do is to say, okay, We've got a whole load of other metrics that we can look at for each of these. And what we'll look for is some correlations to see whether things are higher or lower in certain ones. And it usually came down to things like, you know, creative guidelines, how well they were, how they were, how well they were met, how they compared with previous countries and so on. And it, it was never a session about punishment or marking your homework, even though I suppose it sounds a bit like that. We were never not going to invest in in, in Twitter or Snapchat, or I'm not going to sit in a room with someone and share results with them. Um, if it's not something that we want to work with and understand from, and, and it helped them. I think the, the sad thing of that partnership was that it felt like we were the exception rather than the rule. Not many other, uh, even FMCG companies, were coming in and spending that time with them. They might go in and see the research that Twitter had done, and, and Twitter would share those results. But we were, you know, we were working with an external agency, and I wasn't sharing, wouldn't share results from other platforms with them. Just say, well, look, this is what this is what's happening on your one. So that's I think that's how it should work um, from purely the understanding of, of the results of the metrics and so on. How does that um, then link into conversations around creative, around planning, around media decisions? Well, the way it helps is it, it you can then package up the results for the media team, for the marketing team. 
and uh, the creative agency. And we would have those sessions as well at a sort of top level where they would look across everything. And what we would, I would do is to say, okay, for example, where we have, what I, can, what I can see on this particular platform is that when of the 70 observations I now have, uh, where we have spent above this amount, but below that amount, and the impressions have been at this amount, the ROI is, is 90% of the time is going to be six. So straight away, you've got to say, so I'm not saying you, should, you shouldn't go outside of that, that guidelines based on those 30 observations. What I'm saying is if you're going to do something in the future, and, and this is often my work within Evolvinter, here's the new media plan. They say, oh, we're going to do you know, 10 million impressions that week and they want to pay X on it. I go, okay, that's fine. But you do know we've never, you know, achieved a very positive ROI when we've, when we've had above 5 million. I'm making up the numbers to make the point. And you say, okay, there's no reason necessarily why a brand marketeer would necessarily look at that and be really knowledgeable within the platform about the, you know, the, the range of impressions and price that have worked in the past. Now, we can change it. That's fine. Go ahead with it. But this is what we have observed. And then that would... The, the separate part of it in terms of measuring the the creative, I suppose, was really just about um, the other metrics that, you know, that, you know, some of the softer metrics, I guess, that you mentioned around in terms of likes or shares or organic and bits and pieces. And so there has to, you know, it, anything in modeling, let's just to be clear, it's not all science, you know, it's art and science. And you have to have a, you know, you have to be able to have a conversation around the creative side of it and its influence on the advertising, so long as the media buy gives it the best chance to succeed. So I don't think we ever made a creative decision um, based on the back of um, the type of creative within an ad, put it that way. We might make a decision, and this has happened in the past, where we were considering changing um, the creative completely for a new execution. And there were some questions about that new creative. And the thing I made the point at the time was that the initial creative, if it starts off well, the next time you air it, it will probably do better again. And the next time you air it, it'll probably do better again. And you might not have to air it for so long and you might be able, it might be slightly cheaper to run in the future than it did initially. And so therefore changing the creative completely rather than tweaking your creative adjustments which angle you're going at you know you need to do carefully and that's probably one of my challenges back to the whole creative side of the business uh, industry because they will talk about brands not investing for the long term which is a fair point and, and they're quite short termist in their thinking and then their metrics and the metrics i would provide but on the other hand i've never heard a creative agency say say no we really like that ad we're going to carry on airing it in fact we're going to air it for two years or three years or four years or five years because it's still working you know, Galaxy um, Mars, uh, Mars brand, they had a Galaxy ad with Audrey Hepburn and uh, sort of animated thing type sort of thing anyway. Uh, they had that ad for five years. I'm assuming it was still being quite effective for them. A few little tweaks here and there, but pretty much the same comms. And I think Specsavers with their vet ad, um, where the guy's mistaking a dead cat for a wig or a hat, I know a hat, isn't it? Um, I think that was being aired for 10 years, maybe. Um, so it's it's fine for the, that side of the business to talk about, oh, we're going to keep changing creative, we're influencing creative. But it would be nice to get some support occasions saying, well, we've done something great, we keep on going with it. And we keep, you know, we don't, you know, reinvent it each time just for the sake of creating another commercial. Which leads me beautifully into my last oh. question. Um, an ex-colleague of yours um, asked the question on LinkedIn, Jerry Dakin um, asked the question mm. uh, to get your thoughts on the recent rebrand of Cadbury. Yes. Um, so as uh, for those of you who are maybe not aware of this and the timing and so on, um, you know, a few months into the, uh, the COVID-19 crisis, um, there's a, a story being shared about Cadbury having a, a new logo, I suppose, how to put that. And the, um, the Daily Mail had a headline saying Cadbury spends a million pounds on a new logo. And broadly, the, the sentiment being it's pretty much the same as the last one. And they spent a million pounds on it and maybe just a bit of a nuance of, you know, how dare they spend a million pounds in this time, in these times on, on a rebrand. And for people um, that don't it, understand branding, uh, Matt, it's a well, bit like the um, the uh, I don't know if you've seen the theater show art where um, there's a, a white canvas with white dots on it. So essentially to the to the layman, it's just a white canvas um, and um, 
and David French was saying, but it's white. So yeah, but it's got white dots in it. Says, Please tell me you didn't spend a lot of money on this. It's like, well, two hundred grand. It's like two hundred thousand pounds. It's white. It's just white. Yeah. Um, and and I think uh, the BT logo came under particular um, yes. fire, didn't it? Because essentially, to most people, it just looked a little bit like Helvetica in a in a, in a circle. Um, mm. Where, of course, a lot more went into it. Sorry to talk over well, you. No, no, that's fine. It's, I'll, I'll reference the BT one simply because my uh, my dad worked for BT for his entire career, and I think they went through about three or four big rebrandings in the time he was there, and quite dramatic differences in logos over time. And uh, let's just say he um, he had several conversations where people would try and justify and explain things, and um, let's just let's just say I think he he didn't feel they were getting value for money. Put it that way. Um, I think part of so part of the reason for the change, the the BT one, I think, and also the Cadbury one, is first of all because of using the the brand and the branding online and, and the different formats that happen. So if it, the, the nature of it meant it was quite difficult to use and difficult to share, and so I think that's part of the reason behind it. Um, I suppose it's the cost of the thing that that's first thing that stands out. To be fair to the Daily Mail. The source in the article says that that logo looks like it could cost up to a million pounds. So that's become the headline. Now, it might have cost a million pounds, but it was only an assumption. Um, we don't know. It might have cost half a million. It might have cost 10 million. I think they probably wish they'd said 10 million now. They've got even more click throughs. Um, the, the point I, I think I was making to, to Jerry's um, article was that. First of all, it's not just a change in the logo. It's a complete change in the packaging. And the packaging for Cadbury has evolved, not just in the UK, but in, um, in India, in Australia, in South Africa. It's a big brand in those countries, a big brand in Ireland as well. It's a different, slightly different product. It's made slightly differently. And they have different products which have evolved slightly differently. And part of a, every brand goes through this process. And, and it's been honestly, this process has been going on for three or four years, pretty much, about how we bring together the Cadbury packaging, and the Cadbury logo in a consistent way, whilst taking, uh, taking into account that there's different flavors and, and stuff being used in different countries. And not people aren't necessarily aware of that in the UK. So it needed to be done from that point of view. It's a kind of a hygiene factor. Um, but there's hundreds of different packs and sizes and bits and pieces and meetings that have to be had about what this is going to look like. So the uh, what they had to do, obviously, was put this thing together. So first of all, the thing was it's not it's not a decision that has just come to since COVID-19 has kicked off. They thought, oh, let's change the brand because we've got nothing else to do at this time. This is the culmination of, of, of you know years of work. Um, and this, and the, um, the other point I'd make about it is that um, – the yeah the actual and the actual the actual cost of it is 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 very difficult because it's time and it's effort and it's design that comes through when you get to that bit of trying to explain a logo and why it's there and what it now means exactly to your point about a, a white sheet with black dots on that's where half the problem comes in because it's it's very difficult to explain to someone a creative process and and put a value on that i mean People accept that some paintings can go for tens of millions of, of dollars and pounds, 400 million, I suppose, expensive painting. And people kind of accept that. But at the end of the day, formerly there was a blank canvas. And then there was a person who painted a picture and it may have taken a while and they may have painted lots of them. But that's it. And the value of it is, is purely down to what someone is willing to pay for it. So um it's it's entirely a subjective conversation it's always nobody likes a rebrand no everyone thinks they're a waste of time everyone thinks oh you know how does it cost um you see some nice looking images and and think well that that's that's only worth this or that or the other um so it's a very i say it's a very amusing kind of conversation but the fact that the headline is 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 based on someone's assumption that's what something might cost i suppose probably explains as much as you need to know about it but yeah to reiterate it was it wasn't something that happened overnight and it has a wider purpose uh, than just a rebrand it's a whole packaging and, and products and ultimately as as i think as jerry alluded to the question the point will be once this is rolled out once this is there what does the impact you know consumers will decide if they like it if they buy more of it if they think yeah actually this is 
is makes the on-shelf experience when I'm in the store, I'm trying to choose what to buy. Yeah, that, that packaging makes it easy for me to choose Cadbury and, and all the advertising work that's gone in before has helped me come there to make a better decision. So, um, yeah, the, the value of it, trust me, you know, a million pounds on, on some repackaging and rebranding on a business that turns over billions of pounds is, you know, would seem to be like a reasonable investment. Um, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I feel um, just some of the notes I've made here that we could probably have at least another three hours, but I know you're going to go and get your, <laughs> your allotted daily exercise uh, during uh, lockdown very soon. So I, I shall let you go. Um, and thank you for being a, a part of the first ever Six L's um, podcast. If anybody would like to appear on the show to talk about anything that happens um, in the process of flogging stuff or the art and science of flogging stuff, all the way from brand to consumer and back again, uh, please get in touch. My email address is mike at sixcells.co.uk. Um, the podcast is going to be um, weekly, this being the first. Um, and apologies if there's any sound um, difficulties as uh, as you went through that today. Uh, we are recording from home, obviously, during lockdown, and internet connections can be a little bit temperamental. So thanks again, Matt. Um, hope you stay well and safe. Um, look after yourself. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you.